On this episode of A Pot Upon a Hill, we're going to be doing a deep dive into New England colonies as well as colonial society in the 18th century. This is the second part of Period 2 1 Notes. All right, here we go. In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well trained. He will fight savagely. We'll light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. We will accept nothing less than full victory. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. So we're going to start in Massachusetts with the Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay Colonies. Of course, 1620 is when the Pilgrims land on Plymouth Rock, and it's founded by a group of Protestants that we're going to refer to as separatists. And the reason why they're called separatists because they're going to be um, radical dissenters of the Church of England, which was the state-sponsored religion at the time run by Henry VIII uh, through the intermediation of the Bishop of Canterbury. Now, the reason why they're called separatists is because they wanted to be separate from this church. They believed it to be um, uh, an arm of the of the state, of the monarchy, and they really held a strong belief in the concept of predestination, uh, pro- proliferated and uh, proposed by a man named John Calvin. Now, what predestination is, is the concept that um, some people, God, has chosen them to be destined to go to heaven or hell. And with this fatalistic approach to theology, um, you have n- no choice in this matter. So this is a very kind of radical idea at the time, and they wanted to kind of have a separate space to kind of practice this type of, uh, this idea, this, this, this form of Protestantism. Yeah, so when the pilgrims arrive at Plymouth Rock, um, one of the first things they do before they depart from the um, ship is they write what's known as the Mayflower Compact. Right? And this is incredibly important because this is really the first um, set of laws written by people uh, in a democratic fashion, that they all came together and said, hey, in order for us to you know, work together as a society, we're going to need some rules and regulations of how we're going to um, you know, live together. So the Mayflower Compact is important for that reason. It's the first example of a uh, written law in the North American continent from the English settlers. So, um, you know, and tr- the tradition of Thanksgiving we know from right. 1621. It's when we are establishing relations with the American Indians. Now, the important thing to remember is most of our understanding of Thanksgiving is an interpretation that may have been slightly sanitized from the truth of how we intermingle with them. Right. If you remember in previous lectures, we talked about that that the tendency for collaboration between any European settlers and mm-hmm. Amerindians rested upon whether or not the uh, the Europeans uh, needed to survive. Yeah. So the, mo- the more... Uh, the more that they need to survive, the more likely they are going to seek some sort of assistance from the Native Americans. The moment that Europeans are established, that's when we start to decimate them and, and commit genocide on a, on a mass scale. So It's a need-based relationship. It's a need-based relationship for sure. So we kind of, um, you know, we have a tendency to highlight some of the uh, collaborative events 
and downplay some of the atrocious events. Sure. And and so that brings us to 1630, which is the founding of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Right? And th this is found not by pilgrims, but by Protestants that we're going to refer to as Puritans. They're not trying to separate from the Church of England, but they're trying to purify what is already there. Um, they believe that there were too many connections to the Catholic Church in terms of the customs. It was very liturgical. The, the Church of England, it, there was to them, it, it was basically Catholic Catholicism light yeah. in England. A watered-down version of Catholicism. Right. <laughs> so um, the, the John Winthrop is the man who leads them to what is known as Boston today. And he wanted to create this theoretical city upon a hill. Yeah, it, it's basically a title of one of the speeches that he made to kind of justify uh, the creation of Boston. He was one of the, the governors of Boston. But he really wanted this city or this colony to be the basis or model of other uh, forms of cities. He really envisioned this to be a utopia based mm -hmm. on scripture. So there's some theological undertones to this. However, you have to understand that this is, some historians have contended that this is the basis of American exceptionalism, this idea that we are the model mm -hmm. uh, of the world, and especially in today's uh, society. But we have elements and roots to this dating back all the way to John Winthrop. Yeah, and so one of the things about Winthrop is the fact that this concept of a city upon a hill was also about the intertwining of religion and government and that they were going to be one and the same and that in order to purify what had gone wrong with the Church of England was to create this new, better version of a government and a religion of the Protestants. Okay, so the other thing that contributes to the settling of the Massachusetts Bay Colony in a large part was the ongoing civil war in England, right? The Great Migration. There's over uh, 15,000 Puritans that are arriving in Massachusetts in the early stages of this colony. Uh, and that brings us to life in New England, and we've briefly mentioned it already. It's largely theocratic, right? So the government is administered by members of the church. It is not something that is separate. Um, one of the important things of the government is to help enforce morality. There's no distinction between church and state. They are one and the same. And that is what the Puritans believed was important to establish a society that was sustainable and a representation of what um, a utopian society should be. Now, it's important to kind of make a distinction here. It's not like, because um, some of you, most of you are Catholic listening, it's not like a bunch of priests are running the show here. Uh, the government will be administered by a group of people called freemen. So these are going to be lay people that are going to uh, donate a substantial portion of their funds to the congregation. That's what they call their community or church. Later, this will be called congregationalists. Um, and these people, because of the donation and the stake that they have in the church, they have, a, they have a say in it, whether it be making policy, voting on laws, or even kind of enforcing some of these principles. And a large part of it was they were investors. They had some money that could right. help the build these churches. Very much yeah. like the investors that we talked about in the previous uh, audio lecture yeah. of the uh, Southern, the Southern mm. colonies. That's right. So, um, you know, when we talk about theocracy, some of you are thinking of other theocratic uh, regimes, and you're thinking, oh, this must be bad, because yeah, we have inherently. a tradition of separation of church and state. However, there's some good, bad, and ugly elements to this. So the good, um, it's going to provide structure and stability, especially uh, with settlers that are leaving their, uh, their their nation and they're going into an unfamiliar spot. Uh, there's many threats. There's natural uh, natural threats as well as uh, threats in the Dutch, the Spanish, the French, and as well as the Amerindian tribes. And there's also the threat of um, chaos and, and crime that might happen within your community. So the idea of religion is a really good way of kind of uh, keeping everyone in line. So mm -hmm. it's a really good way of 
you know, the do's and the do nots, and it kind of lended itself to strict gender and class roles. No one is ever going to a form of revolution if everyone believes in the same God. If everyone knows that by doing violence onto, uh, you know, the upper classes, so to speak, whether or not they're oppressing you, you know you'll go to hell. So it does provide some sort of social cohesion during this time. Yes, and one of the other critical elements of, um, you know, the church and state being intertwined was, you know, learning and reading from the Bible and Scripture was incredibly important for each, every individual's salvation in the Protestant mind. So this also creates the foundation for the public education in New England. And a large part of the public uh, universities in our country that are established are all based off this uh, Protestant uh, idea of uh, scholarship. And the word that you should be looking for is public education. That means these are taxpayers putting it into a system or institution that is going to educate other boys and girls. Mm. Now, one of the earliest um, public educational laws is the Satan Deluder Act, believe it or not, in 1642. And the whole reason for public education is to teach children the Bible so they're not going to be tempted by Satan. Yeah, and so as the saying goes, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Their concern is we want to keep our children busy because this way they can't get into any trouble. And that's where really the Satan Deluder Act uh, originates. So, um, you know, the bad and the ugly, you know, rejection from society. If you represented a different viewpoint or you're somehow out of the norm of this Protestant religion, banishment was common, just completely removing you from society. And we see, you know, which is made most famous with the Salem witch trials is the way in which their society had become a little bit prone to superstition and hysteria in a sense of, if you're unsure of what the cause of something is, you could be blaming these individuals as being the origin of it and accusing people of being witches. And we know with the Crucible how that ended up. And also, like anyone from different classes or from different genders that are going to maybe like give challenge, you yeah. to challenge, you know, the status quo, they might be seen as tempted by the devil. So mm-hmm. we do have a very rigid uh, system that is being developed on the basis of theology during this time. And they're skeptical of change because of, as you said, the concern over negative influences. For example, I mean, if we're on a school trip, there's 30 students, I'm on the bus, we're the Joshua, we're the Gary, you know, it's not a democracy. We're not polling everybody on every decision where we should go to eat and where right. we're going. You know, Brother Joshua's running the show and we're all following yeah. along. You need to establish some type of order in order for it to work. And that's the element of structure that they're trying to create in these new societies in New England. But the contrast to that is where we have the colony of Rhode Island. Roger Williams was concerned that with government and church intertwined, that inherently politics, the corruption that sometimes occurs with that, would bring down the religion that they are trying to maintain the purity of. So he thought that it was really important for the government and the religion to be separate, for them both to work best. All right. So he believed that an individual's conscience was beyond the control of the government or the church, that you knew for yourself whether something was right or wrong. And um, he was actually banished for his views, and he had to establish his own colony of Providence in 1636. It was very progressive. He actually recognized property rights of American Indians. They had to pay for their property, though. And he was um, somebody who thought of the idea of religious freedom as not just separation of church and state, but he welcomed Quakers, Catholics, and Jews. So this was very um, progressive for its time and was different from the Massachusetts Bay Colony to the north. And another uh, figure in the puritanical society that started to um, challenge the status quo 
in Massachusetts was a woman actually by the name of Anne Hutchinson. And she believed in the concept or uh, that there was a school of thought called antinomianism. And what that basically means is, uh, remember the sola fide, sola scriptura, sola gratia that we've mentioned in other lectures? Yeah. Well, it was an overemphasis on sola fide. So her understanding is that uh, you would get salvation through faith alone. Yeah, who are you to tell else, me what right. I need to do? So yeah. in her mind, all of the, um, the Freeman's laws and all the Freeman's social norms that are constructed, um, they're not necessarily by God. And she found that as the basis of challenging some of these rules. Yeah, and point those rules really, out to me in the Bible. Where, that, where do you see right, that? And yeah. that significantly disturbed the puritanical and patriarchal elite mm -hmm. in Massachusetts. And she was also banished for her views. And she's going to establish the colony of Portsmouth in 1638. Now, what's interesting, a few years later in 1644, Parliament will grant a charter to Williams to merge the two colonies to form Rhode Island. So what Roger Williams and Anne Hutchinson can tell us about uh, religious figures or uh, you know religious political figures is that no one religion, whether it be Catholic, Islam, or or Protestant, uh, should be characterized in a monolith. That yeah. is. Uh, a lot of people have a tendency to think that religion is super conservative or traditional. And there are liberal traditions within all faiths. Yeah, or and, if you're thinking about it the same way as saying, you know, I'm judging, oh, you're this, then right, I know everything about right, you. Right, know exactly. I mean? There's variations in all people just like there are variations within each religion. And that's important because that's... Uh, Part of what makes America unique is and that great, actually, it, yeah, the diversity of religion and within it. Because there's a tendency to think America is heavily influenced in religion, therefore that's bad. Well, yeah, of course the, the misinterpretation of religion uh, to promote oppression is bad. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of people that were inspired by religion actually to do good. So it's kind of For like sure. a... It's kind of like a coin with two different sides to it. So And it's all like a tool is how do you use it? Right. Yeah. And, and, and we want you to kind of uh, keep this theme in mind as we go on with other lectures. This is a big theme that keeps on recurring on. All right. So as we move on to Connecticut, I guess the one thing of note to focus there is that in 1639, is it's the first colony to draw up the first written constitution. In America, and what makes it unique is that it, they have representative government with a legislature that is elected by the popular vote, but the governor uh, is chosen by the legislature, uh, not the individual population. So you have almost like a parliamentary style there, um, and you know later on in its history, it eventually becomes a royal colony where the king has control over who the governor is, and similar to that, New Hampshire breaks off from Massachusetts. In some ways, it's really England is looking at us. What is an easier way to manage these colonies as they're growing is if they they keep them um, broken into smaller colonies and allowing them to not get too powerful. Obviously, the influence of the Civil War that they've been going through. But Charles I divides the northern part of Massachusetts into the royal colony of New Hampshire. Once again, it's a charter where the king is allowed to appoint the colonial governor. So although there are some democratic processes within these colonies, the ultimate say goes back to the king in England. And remember, there was always power in land redistribution and boundary crossing. So, you know, that's kind of like the, it's very boring and it's not very flashy, but it is a very effective way to keep 
large masses of people in control. Um, another thing that kind of goes uh, happens uh, within these New England colonies is 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 an emerging conflict. So um, how New England colonies are being threatened by the Dutch, the French, and these neighboring tribes. I have to mention though that the idea of threatening kind of goes two ways, right? So we have these Amerindian tribes that were there first. Then we have these New England uh, settlers that are going and actually collaborating initially based on survival. When they become established, there's no need for these Native Americans. They either push them out or exterminate them. And as the numbers grow of the new of the English English settlers and the European settlers, that's when the push into the uh, inland territories, just like we saw in the southern colonies, becomes an issue. Right. So they keep on moving west. And it's sort of a cycle that is seen uh, in the southern colonies as well as the northern or New England colonies. You have settlers uh, collaborating with Indians, then they settle the land. They want to participate in the Atlantic market by mass producing large single staple crops. It's a lot of money to make. Right? They need to make money. But in order to do that, they they have to grow a lot of crops. They cannot wait. Other agricultural methods practiced by the feudalistic serfs in Europe, as well as the Amerindians, would be to do crop rotation. Mm-hmm. You you know you only you grow a certain amount of crops during certain times, and then you rotate fields so you can have it sustainable. You could stay in one area for a longer time because you're not sucking out all the nutrients yeah, exactly. like a straw to a milkshake. The problem is is that the European settlers, the New England settlers don't want to wait that long. They want to make a quick buck. And because they do that, they're going to drain the nutrients of the land, which necessitates them expanding out west, mm-hmm. more forward. So their greed encouraged them to have to move in further west than they would have had to otherwise. Right. So there's going to be obvious tension, and that's going to lead to a lot of conflict. Unfortunately, England's not going to be able to provide protection to the settlers because, we've mentioned before, they were amidst in a civil war. So the colonists are going to have to form their own uh, army, and they're going to do that uh, under the administration of what they call the New England Confederation in 1643. Yeah, it was a kind of a limited centralized government. It's going to be a unified government of the colonies of Plymouth, Massachusetts Bay, Connecticut, and New Haven. There's going to be a directed uh, administration of a board consisting of two representatives from each colony. They're going to have the authority to handle the Amerindians, any runaway servants, servants. yes, and and slaves, okay. not just indentured servants, but slaves. There are slaves up in the north during this time. Yeah. And of course, any boundary issues between the two. The important reason, and although the, the, the Confederation eventually disbanded in 1684, um, what the important thing to note is, is that it provided a sense of centralization to colonies that would otherwise have been uh, unorganized and fighting among themselves. So it's going to provide some sort of unity among them. Yeah, what continued that sense of unity was a war that known as the King Philip's War. Okay, and King Philip is a uh, chief medicom who, similar to the Ameri- excuse me, the American or English colonies uh, are all separated. You know, we know that the uh, Native American tribes are very uh, numerous in the Northeast. And so what he does is he unites them to try and wage war on the colonists that have been infiltrating their land. And what was crucial was the fact that they rise up against the colonies and they are defeated. Because what this does is it confirms the dominance of the English in the region. All right. Um, that unified sense of the colonies, nothing really unifies a group of people with differences than a common threat. And that's what the um, 
you know, United Amerindian tribes represented for them. And that's another theme that we would like you to kind of keep noting as we go on through these audio lectures. You'll yeah. find that in the curriculum that there's going to be recurring themes of, oh, there must be some sort of enemy or other in order for uh, us as a nation to unify mm -hmm. or us as a society to unify. So keep this in mind. It starts as early as the 17th century. So yeah. uh, it's important as historians to, to note that. Yeah, so that brings us to the colonial society in the 18th century. Overall, there are a few general characteristics of colonial society that really set up a blueprint of how our colonies are going to act for their first hundred or so years of existence. We have uh, uniformly limited self-government most of the time. We have right. representative assemblies and often appointed gov governors, either a royal appointee or a proprietor who is given complete authority in a region. And it's important to know that the, the English during this time ran a very loose policy known as salutary neglect. Yes, it was basically, here are the rules, this is what you're supposed to follow, but uh, whatever you're doing over there across the Atlantic will let you handle because it's not that important to us yet. And eventually that comes back to uh, end right before the 20-year period leading up to the Revolutionary and War. And what's really interesting is that the salaries of appointed governors, even for the royal governors, was determined by colonial legislatures. So that type of autonomy, uh, the colonial legislatures were able to kind of pressure the governor and uh, how he can enforce policies by dictating his salary. So this is another interesting nuance that you might want to note that adds to the idea of self-government. Well, yeah, because you know, even though they have absolute authority, if they are oppressing right. the people, yeah, they, they're not the going to get paid very much. Right. So th that's an, uh, an important uh, distinction there. Um, now, second element is really religious toleration, not freedom. Toleration. Right. So it's Massachusetts, that. <laughs> yeah, Massachusetts is the most conservative, meaning strict with their following of the rules. Rhode Island and Pennsylvania, most liberal, more accepting of all religions. Okay, whereas most of the colonies are only going to be accepting Christian religions, and that's an important distinction. Um, another characteristic uh, of colonial society is that there is no hereditary aristocracy or no official hereditary yeah, aristocracy. No, there are no titles in our society. Right. There's nothing like nobility. Stand -on, right. Yeah. Um, there is a narrower class system based on a, uh, economic merit that is going to be that is going to develop. Now, I'm a little hesitant because um, in United States history, or the way we kind of express United States history, we have a tendency of making us as distinct from other countries as possible. Mm -hmm. um, so we love to kind of overemphasize this fact that we, oh, we have no counts, we have no dukes. Mm -hmm. uh, there was no record of anyone going by that title. But if you think about the aristocrats in European society, the way they generated and, and amassed wealth was through land. And not too different from the wealthy landowners exactly here. Exactly, like, yeah. the willing, like the, is there much difference between William Raleigh um, or uh, you know the, the the Jeffersons or even the Adams mm. um, in terms of how they amassed their fortunes. Now, right, wrong, or indifferent, it's just that as historians we have to be a little bit more critical of you know some of the the general understandings of American yeah. characters. We're not English. We're this. You know, right. it's, it's not quite that simple. You know, right. but part of that goes into 
the American dream. You know, like we're right. enticing people to come over here because of this idea of you can make it here. Right. So that's why the next characteristic, social mobility, is so important because without that concept of hey, things aren't great for me here in England, but if I go to America, maybe I can move up. You know, the idea of the ability and the opportunity to improve your standard of living. Almost everyone had that chance with their own merit, their hard work, a little bit of luck, and being in the right place at the right time, except for slaves. And so that's important to understand is like, what was the selling point for people to come to the new, new world or the American colonies was the ability to move up the social ladder. And that's crucial because that is how these, uh, we populate uh, all of our colonies. Right, and, and there is a chance of social mobility, but remember, if you are rich and have enough money to get here, of course you will be already in the social class that you are. But if you're in a poorer class, you would have to probably be an indentured servant that mm -hmm. we've mentioned in previous lectures, and then you would have to buy or kind of wait a certain amount of time, and at that point, you would have to move out west because yeah. uh, the people have already established themselves out along the eastern coast. Well, yeah, we're not saying it wouldn't be easy. It would be right, easy. Right, right, right. You know, the important thing that they're trying to say is there's no distinct title that is preventing you from achieving right. it. Right. You can achieve it if you're willing to do it. And this kind of goes to another point that the majority of the people, over 90% of people, are going to live in rural farms. Um, and, and, and out there, you're going to have, again, uh, the element of survival. And that's going to kind of lead to strict gender roles to be intact. And... What's also interesting about rural society is that uh, women actually are going to have a very active role. By that I mean more responsibility, consequently more values, but we will talk more about this later on in other lectures. And one of the factors that plays into this is population growth in our colonies. So if you look at the differences between 1701 to 1775, you know, we, 10 times the growth and from 250,000 all the way up to 2.5 million, you know, African Americans. Uh, mostly slaves, 28,000, all the way up to 500,000. So why why is the uh, question really? In, in large part, it's increased immigration. We got push factors from Europe, bringing more and more people here, and also higher birth rates. It's un unique fact about Americans is that the European our European ancestors that came here uh, actually had higher birth rates once they arrived in North America, whether it be just more space or uh, fresher better air. Diet, better diet. Yeah, better diet. And, and just like you weren't living in the congested elements of, of the cities in, in, in uh, Europe. But uh, over the course of the next hundred years, you know, Americans grow to be over an inch taller and, uh, you know, longer lives than their European counterparts, which is interesting. And it seems that John Winthrop's City Upon a Hill is actually working, right? Because this kind of coincides with this utopian vision that we can create a model society that is better or distinct from Europe. So just keep that in mind as we will walk along, yeah. uh, as we continue talking about Yeah, for sure. And, and that, that when we think about it, we have to focus on all the different areas people are coming from. So we have Germans largely settling the farmlands of the West of, uh, in P uh, Philadelphia and Pennsylvania area. Um, Lutherans are disinterested in English politics. Right. By 1775, they're about 6% of the population. We've got Scots-Irish, of course. They are going to be very dis um, disregarding of the English policies, and they're fiercely independent. Uh, they're settling all the way of the frontier of Pennsylvania, Virginia, Georgia, and the Carolinas. Uh, and, of course, we have 
Africans that largely are coming to the colonies as slaves. Um, and they're sprinkled throughout the colonies, but 90% of the African population is in the southern colonies, most highly uh, populated in South Carolina and Georgia. In 1775, we have both enslaved and free, making up about 25, uh, excuse me, 20% of the overall population of the colonies. And remember, with immigration also comes a different makeup or national ethos of a society. So when we talk about immigration, it's going to change not only the landscape, but it's going also going to change the interests of uh, of, Ameri of the American colonies mm -hmm. and that will have some sort of um, factor or impetus for tensions later on in the 18th century when we talk about the American Revolution so keep that in mind um, let's shift gears over to the economy what's going on during the economy so England um, as we discussed in earlier lectures are is going to uh, to seriously implement mercantilist policies that are going to curtail and uh, prolific colonial manufacturing after the Civil War um, you know like other European nations they're going to establish a very very strict state uh, managed uh, economic system known as mercantilism and they're going to do that through policies such as the Navigation Acts, uh, passed from 1650 to 1673. Yeah, the reason why they're so important is because they're basically limiting all trade, must go through right. England, and must come from England. Right. They can't allow all the natural resources, no, uh, natural resources from these English colonies to be selling their products to other European nations. They are meant for the enrichment of England. It's trade protectionism. Yes, trade will exactly. only be con conducted with English or colonial-made ships and crews. So ostensibly, if you're in those industries, you have a monopoly. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're having monopoly protected by your nation. So this is a very nationalistic economic policy. So and some people are going to benefit and some people are not. So all of these imported goods, for instance... Uh, to the colonies had to pass through English ports first. Yes. That's going to help the people uh, you know, selling these products, but the consumer, of course, is going to take a hit. And then the European, uh, excuse me, the English really wanted to control some um, products, and they had a list of them, enumerated right. goods, where those that could only be exported to England, not to any other country. And that was their way of controlling the profit uh, that was being made. So the industries that are going to develop as a result of these policies will be uh, d based on geography. So New England, you have logging, shipbuilding, fishing, trade, and rum distilling, which they're going to get a lot of uh, from the Barbados and the West Indies uh, down south. Middle colonies, you have limited iron making. I say that limited because most of the iron making will still uh, be uh, processed in England. And of course, in the southern colonies, you have tobacco, tar, pitch, rice, and indigo. Yeah, so I mean, Yes, it's good for who, but right. the British textile manufacturers, they have all this raw cotton coming in, right. all the raw materials coming into Europe. Uh, excuse me, I keep saying Europe, England. Uh, the Chesapeake tobacco farmers are, are benefiting greatly from this because of the large demand in England for the tobacco. And the New England shipbuilders, all these people now have guaranteed markets right. where Monopoly. England is guaranteeing you that we are going to sell this to you. We're, you are going to buy it no matter what. It's very nice as a business owner to know you're always going to have somebody to sell to. That's what they had now with the English crown. And the English military is now being deployed to protect those trade uh, routes. So the colonies are no longer going to have to be worried about external threats because with the English domination comes the English protection. 
And it's ironic because if you recall in the other lecture, the English Navy made and developed this reputation by uh, pirating yeah, and those privateers we talked about yeah. ships from Spain. So it's interesting that England now is protecting their own merchandise. So the other interesting thing is you also have to look at the bad. So farmers are really stuck and beholden to low prices on their crops. English were not concerned with any weather problems or any bad crops or any bad seasons that occurred. Any of your excuses are not interesting. Right. This is the price that is being set. So yes, we're guaranteed to buy that, but it's not a free market. It is not a system where supply and demand are going to play into uh, a factor. It's simply this is the price that you are guaranteed to sell it to us, and we are only going to buy it at that price. And farmers strapped for cash are going to have to rely on banks, and we're going to talk later in other lectures how the banking industry has, uh, has a really detrimental impact on these people, this population, which will also be one of the other causes of uh, dissent and tension for the American Revolution. Yeah, so um, part of the uh, trade imbalance is the fact that the colonial America, we're importing more than we're exporting. And because of that, there's not much hard currency. And inflation, with a decrease in availability of currency, inflation is very common throughout the colonies during this time period. And it has a detrimental effect on the uh, economy overall. All right, so that brings us to religion. All right, so we talked about Protestant sects dominating throughout uh, the colonies. And still does today, by the way. Yes, I think here in New York, <laughs> there is a high percentage of Catholics. We, as a Catholic school, sometimes make the uh, insinuation or the assumption that right. if, to be Christian majority. is to be Catholic right. and America is Catholic. That is not true. We are the minority right. throughout the country, those of you that are Catholic. And it's just important to understand that, that Protestants and or other versions of Protestants um, make up the majority of Christians in our country. The Congregational uh, Protestants are in New England. The Anglican is in the Southern Colonies. Lutherans, Mennonites, Quakers, they're in the Middle Colonies, right. focused mostly around Pennsylvania. As always, Catholics, Quakers, and Jews are going to be the religious minorities in all of these colonies, and they're going to always be discriminated and persecuted, so keep that in mind. Yeah, th th that develops a conflict between even the Protestant sects right. themselves. So you have the Anglican Church, which became more of a symbol of the royal colony's control, uh, excuse me, the royal control over the colonies. So there are many people that are resistant to the Anglican Church being too involved with the new governments because they feel like it is the English church domineering over them. And also the the, the the clergy that are going to be running these churches, they're going to be appointed by people in England. Mm. There is no such thing as an American bishop. Yeah. And, and the, the people within America, they're not going to be able to ordain or approve these priests. So there's this other idea that in order to, even your priests are coming, you know, 4,000 miles away, gives yeah. a foreign element to this religion. Yeah, it's not as much of a community-based right. um, sense that, hey, they know what my experience right. is like. They're coming in it's like, right. uh, as some foreigner. So uh, the religious diversity uh, contributes to the limited funds. So right. you have a difficulty with the, the separation and the division and the sprinkling of churches everywhere. All of a sudden, there's not so many churches that can survive economically. So the established churches okay. are the ones that send, tend to last the longest. Please highlight the word established. We really made, uh, we put quotes around it for this reason. We're going to talk about the establishment clause later on, and that will kind of uh, give you more context later on. So we'll talk about that later. Just keep that in mind. Make a note on what established means. Yeah, so one of the most important um, factors leading into that um, establishment clause, and part of it is in the Protestant religion, is something known as the Halfway Covenant in 1662. You have that 
combined with these passionate ministers that leads to the time period known as the Great Awakening. 1730 to the 1740s, you have these two figures, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, that really rise to prominence in their, um, you know, I describe it as there's a difference between a priest and a preacher. And these men were preachers. They were very um, aggressive and, and um, energetic in their espousing of the right. gospel and would take tactics in terms of instilling fear or right. instilling hope in what you should do in, for salvation. In a time where the next generation of settlers are kind of falling asleep in the pews of the congregational churches, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield are really shaking this up. Um, you know, you have to understand in the older generation or the first gen settlers, um, they were totally religious. And if you think about it, that's the reason why they came to this country. Mm -hmm. But their children and their children's children, not so much. They're born here already. So their their connection and relationship with the religion and God is going to be a little bit more waning. And because of this, um, they're going to definitely start to deviate from the puritanical churches because there was this promise or this uh, contract or a public uh, verbal contract that they had to pronounce that they have found God and that they have made a set a very very close uh, covenant or agreement with God and because of this a lot of people are starting are going to leave the flock or congregation so what these people start to do is to figure out other ways to keep the youth more engaged in their communities. Yeah, the numbers is, are going down in the churches right. and they're concerned they're and trying is, to find a different this way. This is where the halfway covenant uh, comes from it is a way in which um, it's a compromise for the next-gen or youthful or other generational uh, Puritans to stay in the congregations that basically says, well, the community won't necessarily determine or can't determine your relationship with God. And if you just say that your relationship with God, that's fine. So it kind of lowers the criteria for entry into these congregations, which kind of allows the populations to be maintained. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I think of about the Halfway Covenant is prior to it, it was the idea was if you've done 100 things, right. 99 of them good and one bad, that bad thing could take you to hell. Right. But this Halfway Covenant is if you do more good than bad, you're right. in good shape with God. Right. And that's how they kind of uh, think about it. And the impact of this is important because this democracy and, and inclusion of more people, and instead of banishing people for being different, right. we're including more people, the emotion and the services, it creates more sects of the Protestant church. It creates a theological independence where people start to think about things on their own and be more excited to be engaging in uh, Christianity. So this is really the first unique American experience in, in kind of, as you spoke to earlier about this ethos or spirit of what it means to be American. Right. This is kind of solidifying what it means to be an American. It's anti-establishment. It is populist in origin. It is, I read the Bible, I've interpreted it my own way, therefore I can go out and set my own church up. Yeah. And again, like, if that scares you, that's that's okay because you're being critical. It's okay to think of this as a wonderful thing and democratic and it's the basis of our democracy. But you can also see this as the, the seeds of populism kind mm. of being sown here as well. So again, like everything else in our in our curriculum, there is a it's a double edged sword. You can look at it in many different ways. Yeah, and, and the critical element of it is as we said, society, government is all based around the Puritan Protestant religion in the Northeast, especially in New England. And this becomes the stepping stone where it's not too far of a leap 
to then later on political and economic independence being crucial to the next generation and the grandchildren of the people living throughout this halfway covenant in 1662. And because religion uh, was... Firm, you know, firmly entrenched in throughout all the colonies, sola scriptura really lended itself to educational institutions. Why education can kind of produce uh, clergymen and other preachers. So there's going to be an emphasis on this. And in elementary education, we did discuss earlier yes, that basically. a lot of uh, the church-state sponsored schools are going to be found in New England, right, with the St. Deluder Act and all that. Uh, more private schools are going to be found in middle colonies. Uh, by virtue of the fact of a, of a tremendous amount of religious diversity, in that what I mean is c Catholics, Quakers, Jews, and Lutherans, and Presbyterians, and yada, yada, yada. And because the government wasn't as religious, right. they didn't have right. a you common... Have, you have William Penn, you've exactly. got the Holy Experiment, he's more open to differences and tolerance. So there's going to be more people entering this, that's why there's going to be more of it. And they, the lack of a public oh, education right. was what I was going to say. And, and then southern colonies, it's so spread out, they have to rely on right. tutors. Right. They can't have the structure of a public education of the small communities that the New England can Now remember, start. education is and, and will be to, even up to today, will be a luxury. Um, it's definitely something that uh, other people cannot afford. Um, to do so when we talk about elementary education or even higher education we're really referring to the elite um, mm -hmm. or at least the people that can get as close to the elite as possible mm -hmm. um, in higher education we have this tendency to call these schools sectarian because that comes from the word sect which is a particular sect of Protestantism. Mm. So all of these uh, these co these colleges that we're going to mention you probably have heard of before and you may want to go to um, but they have, religious beginnings. Uh, in 1636, we have the institution known as Harvard, followed by William and Mary in 1694 and Yale in 1701. You have Princeton, 1746, with Columbia, 1754, and Brown, 1764, Rutgers, 1766, as well as Dartmouth, 1769. Now, all of them had some sort of sect that they were affiliated to, and they were largely um, made to kind of make ministers. It won't be until later they'll have like law schools and what, whatnot. Um, the only non-sectarian or secular university was the University of Pennsylvania, heavily promoted by yours truly, Benjamin Franklin. Yeah. So that brings us to another crucial element that sets the groundwork for the freedom of the press, and that's what's known as the Vizenger case. Now, in 1725, we only have five papers that have been established in the New England colonies. By 1775, 50 years later, there's over 40 in circulation. Most of them very simple, just one page folded over, a few essays, um, European news, slave warrants, and advertisements for news uh, uh, for um, businesses. But the very first cartoon that's ever featured is in the Philadelphia Gazette by Benjamin Franklin, the uh, joiner die famous cartoon. Um, but in 1735, there's this man, John Peter Zenger, who is brought to court for his criticism of the New York governor. His defense lawyer, Andrew Hamilton, okay, he argues that his actions are permissible because they were all true. He didn't make anything up. What he said about the governor was true. So if this was English common law, this would have been known as libel. Despite this, the jury that was advised that this would be liable under English law, voted to acquit Zenger because they believe that the principle of telling the truth is more important than who you're criticizing. So this did not provide for free speech yet, but it allowed the newspapers to be a little bit more risky and emboldened them to be more um, critical 
in their social commentary to provide a check to this institution of government. This was one of the most important elements that later was displayed in our uh, freedom of the press. And when we talk about other law cases, it's important to understand this word precedent, spelled mm -hmm. P-R-E-C-E-D-E-N-T. And the reason why I'm bringing it precedent. up is, and the, the reason why I'm bringing it up is, uh, this was a precedent. This was an example, mm -hmm. and this is the basis for other future court decision. So when when something happens in law, um, usually what will happen, even if the decision doesn't work in favor of someone important, um, how it's being decided will serve as the basis for future uh, decisions. Yeah, that's how judges will look back and say, right. well, how was this decided in the past? Let's look at their reasoning, and it can help them to come to their decision. Right. All right, now, the ideology of the um, Enlightenment plays a major role in the United States uh, forming, and therefore it goes all the way back to the colonies. Right, so the, the, the biggest intellectual tradition that is dominating most uh, American academics during this time is the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. The Enlightenment is uh, a scientific intellectual tradition born out of the shadows of the scientific revolution. It has uh, tenets such as the emphasis of the self, uh, self. If you remember Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am mm -hmm. the center of the I individualism, uh, using reason and rationality to solve the world's problems. Um, it's not ne necessarily atheist, but it is not um, heavily reliant on divinity or divine forces to help solve the world problems. Yeah, I think of it as um, rather than sit back and wait and pray, right. many people said, let's use our human right. reason and try and solve the problems that we can solve with our own uh, working together collaboratively. And we will talk more about the Enlightenment as well as John Locke, who's most well known for his social contract theory written in his two treatises of government. But don't worry about that. We will discuss that in class uh, throughout this year. Yeah, so as we close out here on this podcast, we're going to talk about the achievements and the national ethos or spirit that is really coming together here in the American colonies. The three factors that are most important would be our architecture, our literature, and of course, our science. And all these things are influenced by religion and other elements, um, thinking derived from the Enlightenment. So that's where we'll close out today with period 2-1 notes. Next time you come back, we'll be in period three.